And the way that we got started with that was one, a very large survey. We learned from that that people are interested in providing feedback, unsurprisingly, only about the products that they really care about. They also told us that they often don't understand lingo, internal language, fluffy marketing language. They just really want like straightforward, what is this? What problem does it solve for me? What will it do? And we really tried to craft a product around that. And it was a lot less about the effort in building the product as it was about really understanding a new way to solve that same problem for people. My name is Matt Young. I am the CEO of UserVoice. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Matt Young joined the rocket ship that is UserVoice.com to push product feedback into the enterprise. All this and more on Code Story. Matt Young claims to have been born with a tech spoon in his mouth, having his dad work for IBM and providing early access to computers. He's very interested in the intersection of tech and how it can improve our real lives. Some fun facts about Matt. He loves pinball. He restores and works on the machines themselves, which combines everything he loves. Also, Matt was, and still is, a club DJ, and he loves to travel to ride roller coasters. In 2015, Matt joined his current venture as the VP of Engineering. At the time he was hired, the company was trying to press into the enterprise space. And in order to do that, the company needed some organization and some process put into place. This is Matt's creation story at UserVoice. UserVoice is a really old company by SaaS standards. It was founded in 2008. It was founded by a guy named Rich White. And he was developing a calendaring app and having a whole lot of trouble getting feedback from users about the calendaring app itself, like finding out where it was deficient, what they liked about it, what they didn't like about it, et cetera. And like most great products, you know, necessity was the mother of invention. And he ended up building a product to embed in the the calendaring product to capture feedback that people wanted. And and this was in 2008. So we weren't used to all these uh, little widgets that are kind of ubiquitous now. They're they're everywhere asking you for feedback or, or giving you the opportunity to get help. So it was a really novel, very easy way for you to just click a button and say, I have an idea about how to make this get better. And the whole core premise around user voice is that you as the the creator of a product, you're kind of taking your life in your own hands if you don't listen to your customers and what they have to say. And they can express that in a variety of different ways. They can express it as something they want you to do. They can express it as a problem that they're having. But these are things that, that all product companies need to keep their ears out for. So it started out as a very simple, like convenient way to submit a form with an idea. Fast forward over the years, and you think about all the different opportunities that can be created with that feedback. If you marry that feedback to CRM data, for example, you can find out what people in different segments of your customer base are asking for. So if you're saying, hey, I want to break into a new market, tell me what people in that market are are requesting and what they're saying. It also makes it a whole lot easier to establish interviews with people, either product interviews, marketing interviews, so that you can dig a little deeper into the things that they're they're trying to ask for. And over the years, 
We've really tried to make sure that we are evolving with the way that people want to interact with the companies that provide the software that they use. Today, we're, we're all very used to being overwhelmed with 5,000 surveys showing up in our email every day, people asking us for, you know, hey, what do you think? Your interviews, your workflow is getting disrupted in applications. No one likes that. So we try to study the ways that create the highest levels of engagement with a customer base to give you the, the most actionable, most believable feedback about your product that not only your product team, but your marketing team, sales team, every other team in the organization could, could make use of. I'm not a founder of it. So I showed up in 2015 as the VP of engineering. This was kind of the, the point at which the company was evolving from a company that built a product and just kept being lucky uh, based on a good idea with, with relatively little organization. But we were attempting to go up market into the enterprise space, and that requires some engineering discipline, some structure, some process. The way this happened, uh, Rich and I got together one day and we decided that it would be a good idea for us to become a multiple product company. We'd only sold our one mainline product for a really long time. Rich said, hey, you take the main user voice product and run it, and I'm going to take a small part of the engineering and product team and, and try to operate almost like a separate company and develop this other product. So they even stopped going to our all-hands meetings and things like that. It was, it was pretty interesting. They went to a different floor of our building, really an interesting experiment to see how that would work. And they did what most new product development teams do. They, they come up with a hypothesis, they execute it. It doesn't quite work the way they expect it to. They pivot a little bit, they pivot a little bit more. And they ended up stumbling on a really useful product. It's a Zoom note-taking application that makes it really easy to capture moments when people are exciting, moments when people raise objections, etc., which is very useful for doing product interviews, but it's even more useful for sales calls and customer success calls and things like that. So not wanting to mess up our cap table, trying to sell into two different markets, Rich and I talked and, and decided it'd be best if that product spun out to another company all at the same time not being a founder of user voice, I was able to look at the product and not have the same, this is my baby feeling that a founder might have. And I could take a sledgehammer to the parts that weren't working and, and try to take really new looks at how the product should manifest itself. Towards the end of 2019, conveniently about six months before a pandemic hits, that company spun off and I became the CEO of User Voice. And since then, we've just been trying to like really push the envelope of what it means to have a good product feedback system in the, the 2020s. Well, let's switch gears. Tell me about the MVP. And that could be, you know, the MVP story, the original story, or it can be the you know, MVP when you took a sledgehammer to things or, or when you came in and, and decided to, to do things a little bit differently, not as your baby. How long did it take you to accomplish that? And tell me what sort of tools you used. You know, since we spun off that other product, User Voices developed even another product, a third one. This could be interesting to, to anyone who's worked at a company who's had a product who's been around for a few years or more. Most products will grow somewhat organically, get a bit cluttered, get a bit cumbersome. You're stuck with the resources that you have. And if you made the decision in 2015 to use Angular and now everyone's using React, you end up with a product that isn't as modern. And it was challenging for us to think about how to evolve that product 
everything. So we actually started a brand new product, not only because we wanted to have a product that was simpler and one that could have a free trial that was very understandable and, and could be purchased without any intervention from a sales team whatsoever, but also to challenge ourselves to like start from brass tacks, start from a blank sheet of paper. What technology stack would we want to use? How do we want to go about building, testing, etc.? And we really use that as a test bed to learn things that we've now applied to the mainline product to figure out how to iterate more quickly. So over the course of about eight months, we decided to build a roadmap product. And user voice has never really been a roadmap tool. It's been a, you know, learn about the problems that people are facing and, and how those align with your business goals product. Most people who use a product like that really think about roadmap in the same mental breath that they do a, a product feedback program. And a lot of our competitors did have roadmapping tools. None of us were very excited about traditional road mapping tools. I think they, I, I still believe this. I don't think that most end users understand what a Gantt chart or Kanban style roadmap really means to them. So we really wanted to think about a roadmap from a communication perspective that an end user would really understand and get to it. And for us, obviously being a product feedback company, I want to know what's in the end user's head when we present a roadmap to them. And, and static roadmaps that don't have feedback mechanisms built into them don't do that. We tried to like throw the, the book about roadmaps kind of out the window and, and come up with what's the thing that we as consumers would want to see and, and be interested in engaging with. And the way that we got started with that was, one, a very large survey. And for us, that meant about 2,000 people who are users of B2B software. And we asked them about their attitudes for providing feedback, when they want to get updates about products, how they want to receive that stuff. We learned from that that people are interested in providing feedback, unsurprisingly, only about the products that they really care about. Their time is short, so they want to be able to do that quickly and efficiently. And furthermore, they want to know that something will actually happen with that feedback. They don't want to feel as though they wasted their time providing it. They also told us that they often don't understand lingo, internal language, fluffy marketing language. They just really want like straightforward, what is this? What problem does it solve for me? What will it do? Uh, and we really tried to craft a product around that. And it was a lot less about the effort in building the product as it was about really understanding a new way to solve that same problem for people. So we did that big survey that turned into, I think, nearly a hundred one-on-one interviews with people who were both customers of ours and not customers of ours to dig into that stuff, a bunch of prototypes and some really simple software to bring that to life so that it's very easy to help a product manager express to their customers what they're working on and why it's important and very easy for a user of that software to consume it and react to it. We built it all using Ruby on Rails, Go and React, which are our standards stack. User voice has been containerized with Kubernetes and uh, auto-scaling containers for a really long time already. So we have very few pieces of infrastructure friction in our way. And that, that kind of sets the table for us being able to iterate on designs and implementations without worrying too much that we've wasted too much time on something that didn't quite work right. With the roadmapping tool, then I'm curious about decisions and trade-offs you had to make, right? Things you had to work through. And you mentioned a couple of them, but I want to dive in a little deeper um, around those decisions and trade-offs that you had to make and how you coped with those decisions. I guess there are two big problems that a product manager will express to you. 
they feel obligated by some customers or by their leadership in their organization to put dates on roadmap items. You know, this is what's coming out in Q2 or the second half or next year or the next release. It's kind of a lose-lose situation for a product manager. They, they feel tied to that commitment, which takes away their ability to change plans. And I think we all subscribe to being agile as, as a good thing. If they learn something and change those plans, they, they almost feel like they've advertised something that they can't get out of. They have to keep falling victim to the sunk cost fallacy. So we had a lot of people asking us to be able to put dates and we just said no. We decided to be really strongly opinionated about the fact that that doesn't do anybody any good. So we, we don't have dates on a roadmap and you can't put dates on a roadmap. It's just not a feature that we support. Another trade-off and decision that we got to is when providing feedback about things that are on the roadmap, naturally you would assume that people would want to be able to ask any question that they could dream up. And there are a, a lot of good questions to ask, and there are, there are probably 10 times as many bad questions that you can ask, such that at best they're hard to answer, and at worst people will answer them in a way that is misleading to your organization. So we made the decision that the questions that we let you ask on the roadmap are canned and limited to ones that we feel like are safe and valuable to ask. So these these all ended up being good things because they limit the scope of what you do. But in the end, I think a lot of our customers appreciate it because we're, we're giving them best practices from the get-go. And we're also sharing with them all the rationale behind those best practices. So partially born of necessity. We don't have all the time in the world. We don't have all the resources in the world. There are kind of win-win ways to limit scope and build a better product with a smaller scope. So then how did you progress the product and mature it? And and to put that question in a box, I'm, I'm interested in how you built your roadmap and decided, okay, this is the next most important thing to build. Throughout all of this, we were asking ourselves, like, in what ways could our own product help us do this better? And I've been through the days before Waterfall, the days when Waterfall was the methodology, Agile with both Scrum and Kanban. User Voice now uses ShapeUp, uh, the methodology from Basecamp, to build its software. And the, the reason that we like that so much is that it, it does help you focus on that that question that you asked, which is what is the next most important thing that we can do? So the first thing we did is we took our backlog, which had been built up to about 6,000 things, and we deleted it, all of it. It was just gone. Does that mean that those problems went away? It doesn't, but it, it keeps us from having to stare at a big list of convenient ideas that we can go for and forces us to really ask the question, how do we stay focused on what the most important thing is? So at the beginning of every cycle, we pull up a blank Google Doc where we put what are our, our goals as a company, and then we start listing ideas of improvements to the product that we think could help us reach those goals. We consult our own product, the user voice repo of feedback. We conduct interviews. We talk to our sales team, our marketing team, find out what they've learned, find out what they're hearing most in demos. And it's very kind of up to the minute in our decision-making. And we, we make plans and we write pitches that are oriented around problems to solve, not around solutions that are there. Get everyone to discuss those in great detail. And right up at the last minute, literally the week before we start another six-week development cycle, we decide which of those things is the most valuable to do. 
that has been a, a revolutionary shift for us to make. The adoption rates on new software that we put out over the past two years since we switched to do this are way higher than the ones that we had when we were still doing two-week sprints uh, with Scrum. Let's switch to team then. So how did you go about building your team? And you know, what did you look for in those people to indicate they were the winning horses to join you? And I guess that could be you know, when you joined or how you're doing it now. Human beings, I think, are inherently wired to enjoy predictability. You like showing up to work and you like knowing what's going to happen. But that's kind of at odds with making last-minute decisions that are going to be the most valuable that are there. So we look for people who are really flexible and comfortable with imperfect information and really oriented around finding a way through what we don't know. And that necessitates tearing down walls in the organization, making sure that we don't have a product team that's siloed from the engineering team, that we don't have a product and engineering organization in R&D as a whole that is really removed from what people on the go-to-market side of the organization have. So we created regular meetings, for example, between the product team and the marketing team uh, that you know seems obvious, but they, they hadn't been done before. So really looking for a team that is curious about how the work they do is either enhanced or affects other parts of the organization is critical. Flexibility is key. We look for people who are empathetic uh, and kind because I think to be successful in a high-stress situation like that, you need to have those characteristics. And I, I, to me, that comes from the top down, too. I, I can't be a bombastic leader and expect everyone else to remain cool, calm, and collected. Uh, so it's, it's really important. Uh, we did some very tactical things, too. Uh, I merged the product and engineering team. They both started reporting up to the same person. And we did the same thing with customer success, marketing, and sales. They all report up to the same person as well because they're ultimately responsible for growth. And doing that, I think, has created alignment and goals across the, uh, the different teams as well. Let's flip to scalability then. So you mentioned some tech that, that you built or that the team used to build and, and make it scalable, but has it been scalable from day one or are you fighting this as you grow and gain traction in the product? When I showed up in 2015, uh, the product was efficient and that in, in the traditional ways that you would create scalable technology with good database structure and indices, that worked well, but we were still operating on bare metal. We were hosting our servers at SoftLayer, and deployments and builds were, were quite slow. It was difficult to iterate and roll back and all those things. This guy, Kurt Robinson, who's on our team, uh, I shouldn't have said his name out loud because some of you are going to try to poach him. Don't do it. He came in, in in, gosh, I think this was 2016 or 17. He's been with us for a good long time. And in a matter of six months, had us moved over to the cloud, fully containerized with Kubernetes orchestration. And that was really, really ahead of the game. That one change was a game changer for us because it, it lets you do things like spin up a new instance with what with just one change in the, the code base to test it uh, independent of others with very little effort. It lets the rest of the team get involved in testing a feature and gets it out of the hands of just that engineer or that team of engineers that worked on it. So now uh, spinning up and spinning down resources in technology became a whole lot easier for us to the point where, you know, with, with GDPR coming out, we have a lot of customers outside of the U.S. who are interested in having their system hosted in the EU. Piece of cake, you know, point uh, our build scripts over to an EU data center and it took a day. And there it is and up and running. And in fact, we did our disaster recovery in the EU 
just to make sure that we could do that easily to make sure that it that happened. From a people perspective, the scalability question is another one of those drivers that caused us to break down the walls between the organizations. We wanted to make sure that we didn't have the overhead in red tape or inefficiency in communication from team to team uh, where they really needed to be working hand in hand. So by getting them working day to day and reporting to the same people and gold on the same things, that really created uh, scalability in our people. As you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? The team is the obvious number one. I don't know if you've ever heard the adage like, you know, don't hire someone that you wouldn't want to invite over for dinner. But I would happily invite not only the people I work with, but their families and kids and all those people over for dinner at any time. They're just good people that are dedicated and smart. On a software and services perspective, the culture of being oriented around our customers and potential customers' problems is the thing I'm, I'm most proud of. The solutions will change month over month, year over year. Competition will come and go, etc. But I think as long as we maintain the attitude that we are really trying to solve a real problem for our customers and not trying to like convince them to buy software that wouldn't be good for them or railroad them into a particular methodology just because it's convenient for us is the recipe for an enduring business, not just one that's uh, successful in the short term. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. We've been in business so long, I think we've made all the mistakes at this point, but we'll, <laughs> we'll manage to unearth some more <laughs> over, the, over the next several years. I think the, the mistake that I find ourselves tripping over repeatedly is when we try to build a function in-house that we really shouldn't be because it's not part of the unique solution offering of our product. Uh, a good example is billing and subscription management. We just got finished moving a, a homegrown internal billing system over to a, a third-party billing management system. Uh, we also use SaaS Optics to get reporting on everything that's there. And it didn't occur to me until we had done that how blind I was to the ebb and flow of our customer base and the minutia of you know people expanding and contracting their subscription relationship with us that big picture of our business as a whole was spread across multiple systems for a while but that was all a symptom of the fact that we felt like we needed to build these things ourselves or that it would be too much effort to move to a third party system. So yeah, one, one of the, uh, we, we keep using vendors and I think, uh, the efficiency of building SaaS products is built on the effective use of open source software and the effective use of third party vendors. None of us would think of hosting servers ourselves anymore in, in small to medium sales scale, uh, scale SaaS systems. Why would you build a billing system? Why would you build uh, email delivery or notification systems yourself? Using third parties for that has been something that we relate to, but uh, is uh, something that we'll have our eye out on for, for the foreseeable future. Well, what does the future look like for the product and for your team? We're in the middle right now of touching the, the third rail of the product. There's a, a centralized place uh, in our product where about 70% of our customers' time is spent. And that's always been a place that's a little bit scary to touch. But we're going through a necessary revamp of that in order to you know modernize the workflows that, that people want. User voice is a very deep point solution. I'd like to think that we're the best in the business when it comes to product feedback 
but not surprisingly, you need other systems in place to get the most use out of user voice. And having as a, as a buyer to go to a bunch of different companies and buy those is a less than ideal experience. So I know that we need to partner with other best of breed solutions that make up a holistic suite of software that customer facing teams would use, that people doing research in an organization would use. So either through partnerships or acquisition over the course of the next couple of years, I think that's the means by which we'll be more likely selling with other teams as a, as a more holistic solution. Well, let's switch to you, Matt. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person you look up to and why. That's a, it's a really hard question for me because I think that I try to avoid emulating any one individual and I try to find in anyone that I meet aspects of their personality that I'm a little bit jealous of and would like to have for myself. I, I kind of want to answer that question in the opposite way. One of the easiest ways to become a better leader is to drop habits that you don't think are productive or valuable, that you've seen in, in the people that you've worked with before. Rather than me trying to be Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or, or anyone who's a multi-billionaire with global influence, it's easier for me to affect personal improvement by saying, okay, well, I don't like it when people yell. I don't like it when people raise their voices. I don't like it when people use words that are belittling or, or don't pay attention to how people's personal lives affect their work and things like that. And, and having been witness to that or victim of it myself, I try to drop those negative habits and encourage that in my leadership team and anyone who manages at user voice. And I think overall, that's the way to create more incremental improvement in leadership rather than aspiring to a, an almost impossible to achieve lofty goal. So then we talked about a mistake, right? But a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? And that can be with user voice or really anything in your career. This, this may be a, a common thing, but one of the hardest things that anyone in a leadership position needs to do, I think anyone who has uh, hiring and firing rights, anyone who has budgetary responsibilities in their organization, whenever you know that a change that you're going to make is going to negatively impact someone financially, you know, you're going to lay them off, they're going to lose their job, etc. Most people try to avoid the discomfort of that situation. And every time I've needed to make personnel change, and I reflect on it, I realize that, you know, I, I knew that I needed to make that change months ago, and I was just avoiding the short term pain of executing that. So I always wish that I was more honest with myself when I recognize that something isn't working right and recognizing that it's going to be uncomfortable to change it. But just jumping into it, it's, you know, this is not life and death. Yes, laying someone off is a big deal to them and I want to make sure that they land on their feet. But if the primary responsibility is to the organization and the rest of the people who are reliant on the company being successful for their livelihoods, it just becomes a, a necessary thing to do. So uh, the flip side of the coin of being highly empathetic is that it's very hard to do things that that can hurt people. But recognizing that it's a necessary part of the job. That's that's something I wish I'd learned a little bit earlier. Well, last question, Matt. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world and can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? First, I will say that I'm immediately jealous of them. <laughs> People who are that confident to move forward and build something and they've 
done it and they're excited about it. That is hard energy to, to manufacture if it isn't part of your personality. The one thing I want to make sure that people do is that they have really vetted the problem, that they can articulate very clearly what the problem is and why it is valuable to solve rather than focusing on the solution itself. I think that's the, the place where most, whether it's a whole product or just a feature with, within a product, when there's a miss, it's because it, it was a, a tool that, that you could build rather than a tool that you needed to build. And in order for people to be successful, they, they really need to market it. They need to orient the product around it. It's got to be oriented around the problem that it's actually solving. And, and you need to be able to say it to people in a way that they kind of immediately understand. But, but aside from that, like, go for it. If you feel like the problem is real, you vetted it, you talked about it, you can iterate on the solution uh, and you're, you're on your way to success. If you just have a solution and haven't really vetted the, the product, take a step back. There are more problems out there to solve than there are people to solve them. So go for it. You'll be successful despite yourself if, if something is wrong. That's great advice. Well, Matt, thanks for being on the show today. And thanks for telling your creation story of user voice. I know it was a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.